Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on with yourself today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Man, Dave, it's all good today. How's it going with you? It's all that's, my, good. that's my 70s vibe. It's all good in the hood. Is that? I'm taking it to the <laughs> 90s. So, yeah, all good in the hood. Is that what's happening with you? It's all good, yeah. All right. It's well, we're all not... good in the hood, man. Uh, well, <laughs> I guess the reason you're trying to put on your 70s denim is because we are talking to who are we talking to today we're talking to mick wall author journalist but in this case he has written a book called the eagles <laughs> well the full title is life in the fast lane the eagles reckless ride down the rock and roll highway just another thing to piss off don henley that's fine <laughs> yeah anyway we're going to talk with mick wall and he's got many 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 great stories uh, not only about the Eagles, but his entire career as a publicist for many of our favorite bands. And he's written many books about our favorite artists. He gives us some insights, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He's also written some of the rock and roll magazines like Kerrang! back in the day. Mm-hmm. How do they hear about us, Holly? Oh, please check us out on social media at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast, where you will find outtakes of this interview with Mick and other just some fun facts that he added. Love it. Okay. Uh, let's get right into it. This is Mick Wall, the author of Life in the Fast Lane, the Eagles' reckless ride down the rock and roll highway on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Hey! Hi, Mick. <laughs> Look at that. Hello. It's Mick How Wall. are you? Good. You? Good. Fine. Thank you. Good. And, and you? Doing great. Is this the second book this year that you've written on the Eagles? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, the UK version, which came out in May, just has a different cover and a different title, okay. which is Dark Desert Highway, How America's Dream Band Turned Into a Nightmare. <laughs> um, but in, a, in the States, Diversion decided they liked life in the fast lane and the whole thing that they came up with. And I, I really liked it. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know why I didn't think of that in the first place. I really love my American publishers. Keith Woolman, who's the, the main guy there that I deal with, it's like the golden days. You know, he and I talk about possible future projects and uh, he still needs his bits of paper, but it's gut, you know, it's a gut thing. We kind of know what we want to do. It's just identifying exactly what that might be. We know what we want to do, but it's just how do we go about that? You know, so I like that. I like that very much. Yeah. yeah. Well, it and sounds go it. America. Well, that's it, what I say. Well, it sounds a lot like <laughs> like the Eagles. Let's turn it back to the Eagles because it sounds as we read in your book, they were these two guys, Don Henley and Glenn Fry, were very controlling. They just wanted to show the albums like all that matters is the final result. Is that the way you kind of viewed the, the band? No, not no. at all. I okay. mean, I, I don't think they do either or did either, to be honest. I think this is the great sort of Wizard of Oz image they projected that we don't care, fuck you, you know. Um, classic kind of underdog inferiority complex behaviour you know, they, they were so disregarded amongst their own peers in Los Angeles uh, in the 70s, particularly as they got very successful very quickly, which almost all the others didn't. A good example in the book is like David Crosby talking about how, you know, the Eagles were just, to him, they were like the Partridge family. To him, Crosby, Stills and Nash were like the Beatles, 
and and the birds were like the monkeys, you know. And I find that incredibly condescending. I mean, if Mickey Dolenz and Davy Jones had ever written one of these nights, uh, or Hotel Cal, or, or indeed, you know, dozens of magnificent Eagles songs, I would come to their defence as well. I think Don and Glenn, they weren't from LA. They came in as outsiders. They were late to the party. The whole Laurel Canyon scene was very mature by that point. And I think they just got treated very badly and and written off and dismissed and not given any love, any real kudos. And I think in a way that was a great spur for them to become what they quickly evolved into, which was you cannot penetrate the inner circle. We trust no one. I mean, I completely relate to that. I think that's entirely valid. And I think they were totally misunderstood. And we have examples of that here in the UK, you know, bands that were not discovered and nurtured by the elite music press, of which I used to be a member, so I know what I'm talking about here, that just made it. Yeah, Black Sabbath, their first album, uh, went straight into the top 10 over here. They'd never had any press. It hardly played London. Consequently, they were treated like idiots, you know, like, you know, beneath me. Not me, you know, but the critics, but beneath us. Who are, who cares, you know. I think the Eagles had a lot of that, and it wasn't fair and it wasn't right, and I think they definitely ended up having the last laugh, except by then Don and Glenn were so coked out, you know, they couldn't really laugh, you know. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter anymore what people thought, so fuck them. I think that was the attitude. So you think if they had arrived even just a few years earlier, they would have been more accepted in the Laurel Canyon scene? Absolutely. Bernie Ledden, you know, he had real pedigree. He'd been with Graham, but he hadn't made it. You have to remember the late 60s and the early 70s. I mean, that's when I first started buying albums and reading music press. And there was a really big, big issue in those days about, you know, not selling out. You know, we don't do this for the money. God forbid. We do this for the people. We do this to speak truth to power. And these are all good thoughts, but just completely unrealistic. And I th- and as I say, I think the Eagles just, they, they were seen as Johnny come lately's. And we did better music than that in the birds and all these other groups. You know, it's so grudging. New York can be like that. You know, New York can be very, very uh, sniffy about who it accepts and who it gives a claim to, going back to the 70s. I think for sure, if they'd arrived in 69, well, more or less did, but if they'd arrived at the same time as Graham Parsons wasn't selling records and the same time as Gene Clark wasn't selling records, uh, I think they'd have been right as rain. They'd have been cool. You know, they'd have been like all these other dudes at the Troubadour getting by on, well, everybody loves me here. No one knows who I am, but everybody says I'm cool, you know. They were accepted by their peers. I mean, Jackson Brown, J.D. Souther, you know, the Linda Ronstadt, who said, look, you guys are, you want to be a band? Go, go do your thing. Linda wasn't a big star. And and she was, she's a very, I've met her a few times and a very nice person, a very easygoing soul. You know, she had John Boylan. He was her boyfriend for a while and her mentor. 
you know, she had a lot of good things going on. I don't think she was over concerned really with her backing band. But but uh, even later on, they were always supportive of the Eagles, don't you think? Like Linda and even Jackson Brown. Okay, Dad doesn't like our band, but you know our siblings, Linda and Jackson, they love us. I don't know if they did. Maybe Linda did. I think Jackson. It's different. I don't think Jackson Brown ever saw the Eagles as his equals. You know, JD Salver could have joined the band and didn't. These are very special talents. Very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe they tolerated the Eagles, but I think they saw them sort of a bit as the commercial end of things. And I I can't emphasize enough how that was such a dirty word, you know, back in the early 70s. I mean, they certainly didn't get it from the media. They had to wait for Cameron Crowe to come along in the mid 70s who's writing about Led Zeppelin, who Rolling Stone also don't like, you know, who's writing about the Eagles, who's writing about people that, you know, Grail Marcus and all these people just not even worth my time. You know, that was really, honestly, I think the attitude of the moment. And the Eagles, like all musicians that take themselves seriously, particularly back then where... Albums really were very, very big news. It was a monoculture. We would all know what we were talking about. These guys read the music press. They take it very seriously. And every small slight is like a thousand cuts. And the Eagles really did suffer in that regard. I mean, they had a terrible relationship with the press. And I still think Henley to this day displays that kind of, fuck you, who needs you, you know, I may be wrong, but I think Cameron really was probably the only one that they ever really connected with or or, or let their guard down enough Mm. to think, okay, he's all right. He's not going to fuck with us. He's he's okay. He's a good kid. He's a kid. You know, Zeppelin were the same way. He's a kid. He's okay. He can hang around, but not bloody Lester Bangs or or, um, Dave Marsh or God forbid, you know, the serious guys. This is just my take. But my take is that, no, I don't think they were seen uh, on that elite level that Graham Parsons was, Gene Clark, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Both Holly and I are big U2 fans, but we think like maybe... Like U2 was an earnest band and they were driven much like the Eagles were at the time. Do you think that was a, a reason that the Eagles might've been hated is that they, they really wanted success? Yes, absolutely. Glenn wanted to play Chuck Berry songs and, and be a rock star and have a shit ton of money and a swimming pool in which to drive a big white Rolls Royce, you know, I mean, who doesn't want that when you're 20 years old and strumming a guitar in LA, you know, Don, I think, was a little more serious about his music, but it quickly became about them fulfilling dreams that they felt they weren't allowed to have or weren't legitimately, respectably, credibly allowed to have. But they always had them. They were super driven. You know, John Lennon once said of the Beatles, you know, you have to be a bastard to make it in this business. And the Beatles were the biggest bastards of all. Anybody that's worked with the Stones and Mick Jagger will know he cracks the whip. So, yeah, you do need that. And and I think also, you know, I mean, you too, it's interesting you mentioned them. They're fairly roundly despised here in the UK by a lot of the media because of their success. You know, it's like, oh, no, not Bono again. Oh, fuck off. I'm sick of him, you know. 
I don't think that was quite the same with the Eagles because they weren't around anywhere near as long as you two in terms of making music and stuff. But I think for sure they were outsiders. I think they always felt like outsiders. If you look at that famous footage, oh, it's in the book, and I can't remember where it was now, but there's a party before they've even recorded and they've only got that one song, which you woman. It's the only song they have. So they're playing it over and over and (laughs) over. And here's Joni Mitchell dancing and over there are some other cool people. And these L.A. scenesters, they're like waiters. You know, they're like, I think that's that's kind of in those people's minds. That's who they were. You know, they weren't Jim Morrison. You know, they weren't Jimi Hendrix. They weren't Arthur Lee. They weren't David Crosby. You know, they weren't this kind of vital, no plan B I'm bringing art and my heart and my blood and I will die for you. There was none of that, you know, uh, quite rightly. I mean, I think they were ahead of their time in some ways, you know. Mm-hmm. So the songs that they recorded of other that they didn't write. So like the Jackson Brown songs and the J.D. Souther songs. Is there any difference in the perception? Because they're so proud. And like you said, they always felt to be as equals. Did they perceive any difference in the songs that they took from uh, that they recorded written by others? Because some of them were huge hits also, as much as their own. Yeah. I, no, I don't think they had any big hang-up about that. Jackson released his own version of Take It Easy, and it wasn't as big a success as the Eagles' version. JD, I think, had the best of everybody because, you know, he co-wrote so many songs. He made a fabulous fortune out of the Eagles recording his material. So he kind of had all the benefits, but none of the hassle. He didn't have to go on the road. He didn't have to listen to Glenn moaning all night. He didn't have to listen to Don chuntering away about whatever's bothering him. And he had his own career. There's an expression, he was very clubbable, you know, meaning gets a mensch, you know, someone that hangs out and you like having him around. That wasn't JD at all. I think he brought a bit of edge to them, and I think they enjoyed that. They never seemed too proud to reach out. You know, there were lots of times, may even have been life in the fast lane, I can't remember. Again, it's in the book. You know, there's a time when uh, Glenn and Don and Joe Walsh are trying to figure out something, and Bob Seger, somehow he gets involved. They're fine. It's great. It's all good. No, I, 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 I think they were okay with that, yeah. Yeah. It's good, though. It kind of goes against, you know, it feels like, my God, we knew of the contentiousness. And this is the first biography I've read on the Eagles. But this, like, really drove it home. I've worked with bands for over 40 years. I mean, I, I wasn't always just a writer. I've been a publicity guy. I've worked at record companies. I've worked in management. I've worked with a lot of big bands from Zeppelin to Dire Straits, Journey, I mean, I could be here all day talking about it. And there's a lot of similarities, you know. I mean, can you imagine being kind of hooked up with that person you knew when you were 20, 21, and now your entire career and fate and everything is tied into maintaining that relationship? It's tricky. I I couldn't, I couldn't, well, I haven't. I haven't stayed, (laughs) I haven't stayed in touch with anybody I knew when I was that age. There are one or two people I've worked with that go back a long way, but, you know, I'd already made it by then, as it were. So contentiousness is a common ailment (laughs) for for human beings generally, (laughs) and rock bands in particular. The amount of dressing rooms I've stood in 
where everybody is screaming at each other, you fucking... <laughs> and then finally the door opens and the guests come in. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> and they've all just been screaming at each other at what a terrible gig it was and how they all played awfully. And everybody comes in and goes, oh, that was best show I've ever seen. I've seen you 20 times now. and That was the best. This is the norm. And I think they just kind of grow contemptuous, really, of anybody's opinions but their own. I was talking to Graham Nash just on Saturday. And, you know, he's 81 now. He still has that edge. He still loves what he loves and hates what he hates. You know, you might imagine that after that amount of time and that amount of experience, that you would somehow reconcile yourself with, it's life, what are you going to do, you know? But not really, not really. I think probably because music is very, it's not like writing or movies or painting it's so beyond words. It's so beyond rationale or reason. I mean, if you're a musician, it can be almost mathematical. It's a different way of looking at it. But as a as a fan, as someone that just loves the song or whatever it might be, it, it completely wipes out whether you like that person or they like you. And it's the same for the musicians. In fact, the musicians I've worked with are nearly always more idealistic too idealistic, too dreamy, too stuck on some weird plane that they should have left when they were 21, you know, because music for them is godlike. It does everything else doesn't matter compared to that. Now that also comes into being contentious because you have to share this with that guy and that guy and that guy. And then the manager comes in and then journalist comes in, radio guys like fuck's sake. And you have to pretend to care what they think. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, I'm surprised more of them aren't contentious. I love that word, <laughs> contentious. But we very contentious. Can you imagine how contentious Bob Dylan is? I mean, Jesus Christ, can you, I mean, that poor man, everywhere he goes, he's Bob Dylan. What a bummer. Yeah. He's got to make everybody in the room. Well, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't bother. But um, right, he doesn't care. That's that's the he, that's, he, he that's, doesn't. Well, I think that's where he's that's where it's left him. He doesn't care. Yeah, he he knows it doesn't. He can't do anything about it. But maybe in his twenties or thirties, you know, yeah, he did try a little harder to be one of the guys. We are talking with Mick Wall, the author of The Eagles. Life in the Fast Lane. We don't have time to get into the full title, but we do have time for a break. So let's do that right now. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with author Mick Wall, uh, Life in the Fast Lane. Holly and I watched this from the BBC, like in 1972, the Eagles playing like for half an hour. And watching it, it's it's almost shocking because it, it's almost like Bernie Ledden was the leader. You know, everyone, but everyone yeah. took a turn singing their song, and it looks like. Wow, this is, it's almost shocking. It's its like a completely different band at the, at that time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's more like a sort of a bluegrass outfit or a folk outfit. Yeah. Um, there's nothing rock and roll about it whatsoever. Right, right. Early in the morning, about the break of day, is working so his life don't fade away to spend his days denying that he's got no time for flying in the while high up on his own the ego flies alone he is free but i think also they were coming from groups like america um yeah crosby stills and nash uh <laughs> also at that particular time in the early 70s you know, after psychedelia and and crazy rock music, uh, Dylan comes out with John Wesley Harding. The band comes along. Suddenly, everybody's growing beards and dressing down. I just go on stage in this crap that I wear around the yeah. shack. And I think that was the idea: was it's unpretentious. Uh, we wouldn't sully our music by you know throwing a few shapes and actually entertaining the folks. There was a very earnest quality to it, and. Bernie really encapsulated that and fair play because he was that guy. I mean, he was the only real kind of L.A. guy in the band. He did have this tremendous pedigree playing with some absolutely top notch musicians and making great music. And he could play anything with strings where Glenn was, you know, play guitar. Uh, Don (laughs) could just about play drums. How he ever got a job as a drummer. God knows. Uh, Amazing uh, singer. But I mean, he could play, but it wasn't like spectacular he could keep time but bernie really was very talented he could play anything Mm -hmm. and i think he was the keeper of the flame in the early days you know he was their proof that what they did was authentic 
and as meaningful as anybody else. Joni Mitchell, you know, Neil Young, anybody else strumming a guitar and proving they have no interest in rock stardom. Was there one song that was like the turning point where you could hear the Eagles going, okay, by the way, I guess just Eagles, I'm sorry, just where you could hear <laughs> Eagles. No, the Eagles. Oh, we all say the Eagles. We do. <laughs> yeah. We do. Yeah. Well, well, one song for them or one, one song for everybody or, or me just, or. Well, like with the band, like, okay, so we saw this BBC where they're special. They're at, you know, the first two albums are just kind of like an Americana, the band type band. But then they did make a turn where it was, you know, clearly Henley Fry in the front. This is our band. We're taking control. Was there a song that, or or some turning point in their career where it was like, okay, this is what we're going to be now. This is the Eagles music. I think on the border was uh, was a bridge to that. Best of my love, of course, was their first big number one, and that's what sold the album. But obviously, not that song. You know, they did James Dean, and they did a couple of other bits on that album that were, and they also had some funk on that. the The title track was quite sort of, you know, 1975, average white band, Bowie. You know, it had that kind of funk. Rock and funk were now where it was at. I think the true, you know, for Glenn and Don, they always maintained they wanted to be a rock and roll band. And I think they achieved that with one of these nights. I'd always liked their music, but I remember when that was a hit, you, you heard it on the radio here all the time. And in this country, we had one radio station, one national radio station. So if I heard it, you heard it, you know. And that would come on and it was just, you had to, stop you're just so cool so great you know or if in the car late at night that would come on you go oh man turn it up you know I think at that point they were a rock band. I mean, I think I definitely thought of them more as 
I don't know if I thought of them as country rock, but I definitely felt they were sort of American, very American and acoustic guitars and slide guitars and maybe some pedal steel. I was very fond of that stuff. I liked Emmylou Harris. I liked Dylan, of course. But it wasn't like, oh, this is country rock. It was just sort of what these days, I guess, you'd call slightly more Americana. But one of these nights, at that moment, all of that fell away. You know, if that had been the Stones or Zeppelin or or anybody, it was like that. It was just a fucking great rock song. And they were a fucking great rock band. That was where they went boom, boom. Yeah. Was it the guitar solo, you think, that uh, that sold you? Oh, yeah. But I mean, the, the whole song, I mean, even now, since, and I've heard it like four billion times, right. yeah. but as soon as I hear boom, <laughs> it's like, whoa, here we go. Here we go, man. Quick. Quick, it's happening. Uh, definitely the solo. Yeah, that was the cherry on the cake. I mean, Felder really brought that with it. At the same time, you know, you're listening to New Kid in Town or stuff like that, and they still have that um, pure American sort of poetry, you know, that kind of, I don't want to say country music, but they used to call it California music. I think that's probably a better description. Slightly singer-songwriter-ish, but with this kind of gang, extra excitement that they were these yeah we're coming to your town not like jackson i'm here everybody <laughs> sit down sit down have you had your wine did you smoke your weed right sit down your eagles were kind of like yeah a bit of fuck you in there i always like that always like that did you see them back in the 70s were you able to to go to the show i saw them on the long run tour in oakland because it was a big outdoor thing you know i'm not from america I have relatives there, and I'm Irish, so lots of my people are in America. That was the first time. It was my first trip to America as well. So that was the first time, and I, I, for some reason, I was in New York, then I was in San Francisco, then I was in L.A. It was an amazing trip. And suddenly I'm driving to see the Eagles with these people who are already doing this, and I'm tagging along. And, of course, it was a beautiful sunny day. The top is down. The radio is playing non-stop Eagles, something that would never happen here. I will not do the accent because it'd be too embarrassing in front of you. <laughs> There's this American DJ and he is, it's 92 degrees, you know, and then you're on, you're on the Ventura Boulevard and whatever it is. And, and here's the Eagles. It's like, fucking hell. This is heaven. This is, now I understand the Eagles. Now I understand California, the California music trip. And the closer we got, there were people having, you know, like with the trucks, the tailgate would go down. They got the keg and a lot of ladies with their tops off, just walking around, smoking cigarettes and wearing big hats. And, and yeah, this is all very new to a young <laughs> guy from this country. Sunny for a start. And everybody is very American and completely unapologetic and just loving this music and this vibe. That was when I fell in love with America, definitely. Irving Azoff, the manager, and David Geffen, their head of the label at Asylum. Do you think if they did not have those two people, there would not be an Eagles? Yeah, I think there's a very strong possibility yeah. that there wouldn't have been. These sliding doors moments are real for all of us, I think. I've definitely had some in my life, and... Unlike the Eagles, I think I quite often chose the wrong door. David Geffen, at that moment, is building his empire. 
And he sees the Eagles as a great way to help him do that. I mean, that's what you want. And he was their manager, their label. I mean, you know, everything. Irvin, very similar. He was looking for the main chance. He was, it's not like Irvin now where, you know, you're joining the evil empire and he's got all the bands in the world. He was no one, just this little guy, but he had a mission. He was on a mission. And all bands need that. You know, in, in Led Zeppelin, I know very well, Peter Grant, Zeppelin were his mission. You know, they, they, he was like an attack dog and they were like the thing he was guarding, not just in terms of brutalizing people, threatening people, but actually making them money. And Irving was is that guy. But back then, you know, the Eagles were his first big score. He'd had a couple of notab- very notable successes, but they were the first rocket to the moon and he was at that age where he was super hungry so were they so it was a great meeting of like minds now when i was in management 30 years ago i discovered a band that for me were easily going to be a cross between the new aerosmith and def leppard this is going back their great misfortune was that i was their manager (laughs) Needless to say, they got fucking nowhere. I didn't have what it took. You know, you're talking about being driven. Irving was driven. Geffen was driven. They had literally tunnel vision and they went for it. And there weren't really any rules. They kind of made the rules for themselves. And to have been a band in your 20s on your first, second record trying to make it, and these are the guys in your corner, well... Of course, it made a huge difference. But then if Don had never got in his truck and driven to L.A., you know, there's a lot of ifs and buts and maybes. I don't think you can really say if they hadn't met Geffen and they hadn't met Irvin, they would still have written Hotel California or or any of their great hits. I don't think that would have happened at all because life just doesn't work like that. You can't take out one hugely important figure and just think, well, everything else would have happened anyway. There just would be... That guy wouldn't be there, you know. I don't think that at all. No, I think all these people were absolutely essential in building the empire. Yeah, building, yeah, exactly. <laughs> building the perfect beast. Well, the, okay, so the Eagles had many different parts inside their band. Do you have a favorite configuration of the Eagles? You know, early, mid, late? I mean, I mean, Walsh made a huge difference. And also he brought some humor to it and some lightness. You know, they were very earnest before that. I think I think Felder, for sure, he was a rock and roll guy. He was great. So I guess it begins with when Felder joins. On the border, for instance, you know, that song, My Man, which Bernie Ledden wrote about Graham Parsons, and which he sings. I mean, that to me is by far, you know, easily one of the greatest Eagles songs ever. Tell me the truth. How do you feel like you're rolling so fast that you're spinning your wheels? Don't feel too bad. You're not all alone. We're all trying to get along. Everybody else trying to Nothing we can do to fight it No man's got it made Till he's far beyond the pain 
but in terms of, you know, what I think of the Eagles, where do I go in my mind? It, it isn't that group you were talking about on the BBC all, right. all standing there. It's my turn now, you know. Oh, excuse me. Oh, pardon me. You know, um, it, it, it's Joe Walsh on stage screaming at fans for throwing cherry bombs or firecrackers. You know, it's Glenn Fry saying to Felder from the side of the stage as they go out for the encore, you know, when this number is over, I'm going to kill you. You know, oh. I kind of gravitate towards that. You know, I like <laughs> it when they've got the Lear Jets. And I like it when they've got, it's like Scarface, the movie, you know, you, there's the beginning where he comes over on the bow and it's pretty nasty and all that stuff. But when he gets to the mansion, you know, and he's got Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, that's kind of where I like to parachute in and, and, and join the party, you know, because it's like, where do you not look? You know, I mean, it's, it's all going on. So for the, for me, the Eagles hotel, California, I think, that particular pit or one of these nights, Hotel California, that era, yeah. that it before it all went too bad. Yeah, that's kind of where I go in my mind. Yeah. Mansions, Learjets, um, the best Coke in America. <laughs> um, and and my God, you know, mountains of money. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> Like I started reading your book and I was hooked in immediately because the the intro is Don Henley does not like books about the Eagles. Have you heard back from Don Henley at all or or his people or anything? That's his MO now. He won't say anything at all, right? I haven't heard anything yet. And I hope I don't, to be honest, because, you know, the only thing you would ever want to hear is, man, I read the book. You really got us, you know. <laughs> I got to hand it to you. You really got me. It's just not going to happen. So I think the only reason they would ever get in touch is to say, we're going to sue you or we're going to hunt you down and kill you. That's a compliment for you. The thing is with these things is, honestly, honestly, I don't write the books for the approval of the artist. I used to. My first book came out in 86, and it was the official biography of Ozzy Osbourne, which, of course, he's never read, uh, but it was a fan thing, lots of pictures and what a great guy Ozzy is and all that stuff. And then very quickly, I started writing more seriously, but I was still so involved with all these groups that I didn't want to upset them or offend them, and I would really want to know that they were okay with it all. You know, I, I've stopped doing that, my friend, a long time ago. When I write a book now, I am absolutely not writing it for the artists or I don't give, I honestly don't give a shit what they think. It's not important. The only person I'm writing for who I do give a huge amount of care for is the reader. It, that's all. Be faithful and true to your reader. Don't insult their intelligence. Don't talk down. I always try and talk up. I'm a writer. I want to make great books. And so, yeah, not everybody's going to like them, but as long as I like them, uh, my notional reader knows he's getting me at the best I could do. That's all I care about. All these things have taught me that I don't care what they think. I really don't, because these days the level I try and operate on is not to personally insult anybody. It is to try and get you in the room, you know, because you can read all of this on Google and see the behind the musics and the endless documentaries, you know, it's all there. 
So I try and deliver a different kind of experience, if you like. I try and make it so that you feel like, you know, you're in that room, you're in that world. And so if someone's being crazy or a creep or an asshole, it's okay because you don't have to be a rock star to be any of those things. You know, we have to deal with this every day, don't we, in our everyday lives. And we we didn't really talk about Randy Meissner as much, but he was an integral part of the Eagles, correct? He really was. I mean, he was a fantastic musician, incredible voice, very good songwriter. And of course, he had a great pedigree, you know, coming from Poco, the Stone Canyon band. He'd played on lots of different people's records. And I think he provided a lovely sort of counterweight to Don and Glenn and and Bernie, because, you know, Bernie was his own man. You know, he didn't take any nonsense from anybody. And Randy was very different. You know, Glenn particularly and Don, but, you know, they were sort of born in the spotlight. They That's where they, that was their goal. That's where they wanted to be. Randy, not so much. I mean, whenever it was his turn to sing a song, their idea was he would step to the middle like the others would, and he just wouldn't do that. I mean, uh, the one or two times they tried doing that and throwing the spotlight on him, as he was singing, he was edging out of it. You know, he just didn't want to be that guy. But when Take It to the Limit became, I mean, I, I think that might still be their biggest ever selling single. Mm-hmm. It's certainly one of their best known songs because it's one of those classics that if you know the Eagles, of course, you know all about this. But if you're just a, a regular person driving the car or listening to the radio and that song comes on, you don't have to know anything about the Eagles to know that song. It is an, it's like Bridge Over Troubled Water or something. It's just a classic song. And Randy came up with it. Randy sang it in that beautiful voice of his. Oh, one more time. Take it to the When I was doing the book, I think one of the things that struck me about Randy was in some ways it's amazing he lasted as long as he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was there after Bernie was kind of spooned out of the group. You know, if you had to bet on someone not making the course, I guess it would have been him. It's a darn shame because the Eagles had it all. 
you know, he, he was kind of like the George Harrison of the group, you know, he was never going to be John or Paul, but that wasn't his deal. You know, he wasn't looking to be, but when he wrote a song or sang a song, it just brought something beautiful to the whole Eagles experience. But he was for sure a casualty of the day-to-day experience of the Eagles, you know, especially after one of these nights. I mean, they were always getting bigger, but one of these nights put them, put the whole thing over the top. The whole country rock thing was no longer a discussion, really. They were a rock band. They were no longer competing with Crosby, Stills and Nash. They were up there with the Stones and Led Zeppelin. You know, that's where they were by that point. And that wasn't really Randy's trip, you know. He he was unhappy for a long time. Well, he was a family man early on. He married very young, right? And and so... And had three children who he adored um, and talked a lot about getting home. Uh, didn't like the fact that, you know, the tours got longer. It wasn't so much they got bigger. They just got longer and longer and longer. I mean, I think that final tour was about 11 months. So those first six albums, he's right there. He's in the pocket. His vocal harmonies, the Eagles, I don't think ever, ever had a bad night in that department. Mm. And Randy's voice was a big, big part of that. That was a whole layer that ceased to exist when he was no longer there. So I think in a way it's remarkable that he lasted as long as he did, given the the circumstances. But last he did, and we, we still have those fantastic records, thank goodness. Eagles have announced their final tour with Steely Dan. Will you be attending that show? Any interest? I'd like to see Steely Dan. Um, <laughs> no, no. I saw, I saw, no, 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 no. I saw the Eagles in London last summer. You know, there's only really Don and Joe, and it's all very low-key. I don't even know who half the people are on the stage, just these old guys twanging away, you know. And everybody uses technology now. So it's not even like – I saw. I remember seeing them in the 90s. They came to London and just being blown away at the the vocal harmonies and everything. It was really impressive. And then in Hyde Park last summer, everybody uses technology now, everybody. So even that little bit of thrill wasn't there anymore. So I had a lovely afternoon and then everybody went home afterwards. All very nice, you know. So, yeah, it's okay. I mean, Steely Dan, there's only one guy left, like the Eagles. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, very good. All right, thank you very, very much for your time. Huge pleasure. Lovely speaking to you both. Love it. Listen, it's real fun. I'm sorry I can't stay longer. Bye. 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 Okay, Holly, you learned something about the 70s? I learned a lot about the 70s, and I love talking about the Eagles. I have such fond memories of listening to the Eagles when I was young, and I've been a, I don't know if I would say a super fan, super fan, ever since sure i asked mick wall if he was going to see the band on their final tour are you going to see the band during their two year probably plus maybe two three four five year final tour will you go well i did see the hell freezes over tour that was an exciting time so because don felder was in the band yeah that was it was great great to see them i think it would be very hard for me to pass up because i love them so much i know it will be a different experience as mick himself said it's nostalgia it's nostalgia but i love them. you know i'm a you know i'm a huge don henley fan anyway so i would like to but i i'm still deciding where my threshold where my financial threshold is for tickets because 
they're going to be pretty pricey and I've seen them, you know, a few times. So what about you? Do you think you'll go? Do you want to go? I'll see Steely Dan and then leave before the closing down leaves. I know that's, 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 <laughs> that's my MO, but that's, no, you're not going to do that. If you bl- buy a ticket, you're going. That's blasphemous. You can't do that. I probably will not go to that show unless uh, tickets fall in my lap. Okay. If Don Henley's listening, which I'm sure he is, bring back some of these old guys. Just, you know, let bygones be bygones. Let them play their songs. Put them on stage for a song or two and then kick them off and then, you know, and then collect your money. I mean, if this really is it, that's the thing to do. I don't know. Do you think he has it in him to do that, to invite everybody? No. (laughs) Okay, then. Let's wrap it up. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right, so there you go. That's our uh, still love Eagles music. I don't know if I need to see them live again, but I love to talk Eagles. When Mick talked about having seen them in at Hyde Park last summer and the way he described it in the book, like seeing a concert in the park, you know, like seeing the way you might go to a park and just see, you know, a cover band. And because oh. every, everybody was so mellow and just, you know, sitting in chairs and yeah I, I found it completely depressing reading that that section yeah eagles always uh it's still an interesting topic to talk about the music will always live on no matter who tours with the band people still love hearing it and i'm in that boat as well uh hopefully people will still enjoy listening to podcasts many many years from now how do they stay in touch with what's happening with us I hope they do too. I hope that this is, uh, these will become like evergreen radio shows, right? Shh, radio. You can find us at WDDIM Podcast on social media and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast for all eternity. So check us out. And thank you to Shannon Donnelly at Diversion Books. And also thank you to Pantheon Podcasts. Very good. You can sign up for our newsletter on our website. It's WDDIMPodcast.com. And you can see all our previous episodes. It's all on there. You know, if you don't like listening on your favorite podcast platform, you can kind of catch up and see what we've been up to lately. New episodes every Friday. So, you know, you always want to keep up to date with what's happening with us. So till next Friday, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.